You're listening to episode 38 of the National Centre for Writing podcast. Every week we talk about the writing life and discover exciting new projects. I'm Simon Jones, it's Wednesday 3rd of April 2019 here at Dragon Hall in Norwich, and this month we're celebrating the 40th anniversary of Granter magazine. On the podcast today we've got our programme director Peggy Hughes chatting with Roz Porter, deputy editor at Granter. And then next month the Norfolk and Norwich Festival is upon us, and we have a very special event called The Path to Publication, 40 Years of Granter Magazine, featuring Granter editor Sigrid Rousing and writer and Guardian journalist Ian Jack, discussing the practical skills and insider knowledge needed to succeed in any writer's journey to publication. That's on the 26th of May, and tickets are available from the NNF website at nnfestival.org.uk. Meanwhile, keep an eye on our website at nationalcentreforwriting.org.uk for more exclusive grantor-related features throughout April. Now here's Peggy and Roz. So yeah, Roz, thanks again for uh, um, agreeing to have a chat with us. Oh, thank uh, you. Uh, it's going to be uh, really nice to to hear more about the um, yeah, just the history, but also the the where the current moment and everything. Mm. Um, and yeah, so I suppose we'll just. Well, should we just dive straight on into the into the archives, straight into the history of the thing? Um, but th- th- it was founded actually in 1889. That's right. Um, it was founded as a magazine called The Granta in 1889 by students at Cambridge University. And it was a much different beast back then. It was really a kind of periodical of student politics. And um, I've seen some of the copies at the University of Cambridge. It's all quite twee and funny and like a sort of old boys sort of, it sort of seems ironic, but it's not. Um, yeah, it was really a student magazine, much different from, from what Granta is now. And I think it went, it continued on until the 1970s before it ran into serious financial peril. And at that point, a young American student called Bill Buford, who was at Cambridge, sort of reinvigorated Granta into what it is today, which is a magazine in book form. Um, yes, very important that a magazine with a spine. Exactly, very confusing <laughs> for booksellers sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> so, really, when we talk about Granta, we really talk about it as something that began in uh, 1979 because it was such a different thing in 1889. But its illustrious history in 1889 means it was one of the first publications to publish a lot of writers like Sylvia Plath, Stevie, Stevie Smith, um, A. A. Milne. So yeah, we, we like to we like to acknowledge that rich literary heritage as well. Yeah, I mean it's it's a remarkable roster of a, a who's who really of of, of greats, isn't it? The the, the the in the archive, um, and t- you mentioned you mentioned Bill Buford. I wonder if you could tell us a little bit about more about him as a as a personality and, a, and an editor and a and a person really. Well, Bill is what I would call a very big personality. Um, he has a lot of energy, a lot of creativity. He's a brilliant writer, and as I said, he was just a student at Cambridge. He was twenty-one, maybe, when he looked at this failing magazine and thought, "Right, I want to do something with it." And the main incentive for him was he was an American. He felt that American literature was really having a kind of moment. Um, all sorts of exciting things were happening, happening, especially in relation to the American novel. And he just didn't see the same things happening with British fiction, and he felt that. By reinvigorating Granta, um, one of the things that he would be doing would be publishing a lot of this really experimental modern American fiction for a British audience. So that was very much behind 
um, behind this reinvention of Granta. He set up a little office, I think it was above a hairdresser's in Cambridge with kind of two or three people. And having looked at a lot of material from our, our literal archive recently, all the sort of paperwork from this time, it's really amazing what he managed to achieve. He convinced all these writers, some of whom were extremely well known, to write for a new magazine that no one had ever heard of. No one had ever heard of this guy for pretty much no money. He absolutely charmed the pants off everybody. And as a result, he managed to get a couple of writers who sort of almost became associated with Granta. Um, I'm thinking, I guess, of people like um, Bruce Chatwin, Raymond Carver, Doris Lessing, definitely Martha Gellhorn. And once you have a couple of really established writers like that, of course, it's much easier to get other writers. And of course, it's much easier to sell your magazine. So I would say Bill was just an absolute powerhouse of creativity and imagination and energy. He also, looking at the archive, um, looking through these papers, um, was a little bit disorganized in terms of the business side of things, um, but he was brilliant at getting other people to do that for him. So, for instance, Granta teamed up with Penguin Books for a little while in the 80s, and they did some of the administrative things for him. And then later on, he found a financial backer in Ray Hederman, who, of course, owns the New York Review of Books. Um, so, Bill, yeah, hats off to Bill, really. <laughs> a figure, a figure. I mean, I read that the um, in issue one... Um, you know, the, the editorial, basically, it was that Granta would be devoted to the idea of the dialogue in prose about prose, mm-hmm. um, which, again, Garfield, I allude to him, he, he, he calls this a, a deathly proposal, <laughs> which, seems, which seems a bit harsh. How could it ever, quote, get to 100 issues with, with this as a starting point? Um, I ju- yeah, I wanted to use that as a jumping off point for a, to hear a bit more about Bill's own um, editorial. You, you'd mentioned that you touched on it about kind of, you know, bringing writing to a new audience and, and, and you know, kind of, uh, yeah. Um, could you could you say more about that? Just the kinds of writing that excited him and that, that shaped those early issues, mm. I suppose. Well, he became infamous for coining a term called dirty realism, which is very hard to describe, but um, I would say it defines a kind of quote, masculine, realist, edgy prose, mostly written by men, I would say, um, American men. And I think this was in contrast to what he felt was a slightly sort of parochial, um, I don't agree with this, by the way, I think British British fiction was really exciting in the, in the 80s and the 70s. But um, I think he felt that there was a sort of parochialism happening and a nostalgia uh, in British fiction. And again, this kind of experimentalism that was happening, happening in America, especially in relation to the novel, wasn't happening over here. So those early issues are, in terms of fiction, defined by this kind of dirty realism. But the other thing that I think Bill was absolutely brilliant at and original at was promoting kind of non, non-fictional forms. Um, travel writing and memoir and reportage were not seen as literary, particularly literary back then. Um, literary meant short stories, fiction, poetry. And he really, really brought those non-fiction forms to the forefront of what Granter was doing. And the result was he managed to publish what are now really some classic pieces in the Granta archive. I'm thinking of um, a brilliant piece by James Fenton called The Fall of Saigon, um, which was published in one of the really, really early issues. I think it's about 30,000 words long. Um, 
And one of the interesting things about it is that it was written and published long after Saigon actually fell. So Bill was really brilliant at publishing something that wasn't journalism per se, um, but was really exciting reportage in another way. Um, going back somewhere retrospectively after a really, really important event had happened and, and writing about it in a way that was, quote, literary um, and not journalistic, not just giving you the facts, but actually sort of illuminating the situation and making it feel like you were kind of there. So I think, I think yeah, I think the early, the early issues of Grant are really, really defined by those new forms, making those sort of um, non-fiction forms really exciting, doing different things with them. And travel writing, again, is, is another, another category that Bill really changed, I think. And also that kind of dirty realism in terms of fiction. It just felt, I think it just felt really edgy at the time and unlike anything else. And of course, we've, we've already mentioned it didn't really look like anything else in terms of the what other literary magazines looked like, um, and and the the design um, aesthetic. I mean, it was very it was very cool. Yeah, it was very cool to have a shelf of Grantes. Can you say more about the the sort of design? You know, the the early design, the, the maybe leading up to slightly more present days. Just how that kind of um, runs alongside everything. Yes, there's definitely a sort of collectability aspect to what Granta was doing and continues to do. It's interesting. I mean, every time I see a publication that's in book form, whether it's the Dublin Review or the Paris Review or even like a small university journal, I always think. Was Granted the first one to do that? Was Granted the first kind of book-shaped <laughs> magazine? Um, yes, I think I think one of the reasons for that particular format for Bill was that he wanted to publish really, really long pieces of nonfiction in Granta, which he did. Um, and he was never going to be able to do that in a Berliner-style newspaper format, or indeed what the old Granta was. And I think he also really wanted it to be seen as something that you pick up and you read. Um, you don't just read it in one sitting you read it like a book and you pick it up 10 years later and you read a piece that you that you bought 10 years before and it still has relevance. So I do think there's a kind of interesting relationship between the format and the kind of sensibility of the pieces. Um, yes, in terms of the design, it uh, may look a little dated now, but uh, there's still a kind of cool edginess to those early issues. And then, of course, um, Bill did, I think Bill did 10 years maybe a little bit longer before Ian Jack took over as editor and Ian had his own aesthetic. And uh, you can sort of, if you look at all the grantors on the bookshelves with their spines out, you can go, oh, yeah, those are the Bill ones. Those are the Ian ones. Um, and Ian, I'd say, was a little less cool and edgy. Um, his aesthetic in terms of the writing that he published, but also the look of the magazine um, was a little bit more um, abstract, I'd say. Um, a little bit more unexpected um and it's interesting if you look at the sort of themes as well because of course Granta always has themes um a lot of Bill's themes were quite sort of concrete and some of Ian's themes were really what I like to call transcendental you know he's Ian did an issue called life's like that and you think what and then you read the pieces and you go oh yeah life's like that would it be can I jump in Ross just to ask would it be fair to say that um again looking at the kind of history that it's set out to to kind of um turn turn the attention of writers onto the way we the way we live now is that would, would that be a guiding principle of of the of the thematic approach or is that did that shift with Ian I think I, I would say that shifted with Ian <clears throat> I think I think Bill's Bill's focus was much more on championing edgy forms of writing that he didn't think were 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 available in the UK. Ian, I think, definitely, as you say, wanted to illuminate the ways in which we live now um, in an interesting and, and exciting way. 
Yeah. Um, I wonder if, if in the midst of all this, then, you could also mention um, the best of young issues. And that became such an iconic, you know, sort of really defined um, where British literature was and, and, and still does. Could, could, you, could you say a bit about that and how that came to be? And Yeah, you know. that was a brilliant marketing idea um, put forth by Bill in conjunction with, I want to say, the Book Marketing Council. I can't remember the exact name. There was a body, um, a publicly funded body that no longer exists anymore. And together they decided that they should come up with this list of the best of young American novelists. And then, of course, later they did the best of young British. And so it was really a publicity stunt. Um, the criteria was that the authors had to be under the age of 40. And it's really interesting if you look at those lists, because so many, I mean, I think, I think we've done um, three best of young British and now three best of young Americans. So every, every five years we do one. Um, but those early lists are full of writers who were completely unknown at the time and who are now, of course, really, really well-known, famous authors and it's really it's really difficult to know whether or not Granta is responsible for those careers taking off or whether or not those writers just happen to be brilliant and we're always going to be really successful I suspect it's probably a mixture of the two um, but yes it was just it was a marketing idea and has become really really I mean Granta has become um, associated with those with those lists and it's, it's interesting to see the New Yorker did a list of 20 under 20 a few years ago and various other publications have kind of copied that format. I mean, everyone loves a list. They're so controversial. They're never right. They're never wrong. They get, you know, they get you talking. Very, really good talking points. Um, but yes, Granta, those lists are still really, really prestigious. And we did a Best of Young American Novelists two years ago. Um, and it's really interesting to see how how excited people get about, about the lists and how, how upset people get about authors who they think should be in there. Um, and they're actually really difficult to do as well, because, of course, there's brilliant writing um, and you have to narrow it down. Edging us closer to, to 2019, and you're very much um, involved in the, in the editorial you know, process as, as deputy editor. So presently, 2019, Granta is in 10 languages across three continents. Can you, I mean, 1970s, uh, Granta, in 1979, it was like a playground. Um, what, what's it like today? Is it, is it still being guided by the, the guiding lights of Bill and Ian? Well, every editor obviously has their own, has their own um, sensibility that they impose on the content of the magazine. There's still, I would say yes, there's still a general Granta ethos at the heart of the magazine. We still stay away from writing about writing. We don't do book reviews. Um, and really the emphasis, people get frustrated when I say this, but the emphasis is really just on the writing. Anything can be interesting if it is written in an engaging way, anything. And that's you know part of why we don't, you know, the, the, the theme is almost irrelevant sometimes. The topic of a piece can sometimes be irrelevant. If the piece is written and it's in, a, in, a, in an engaging way, um, it can it can make anything interesting, and we're still very devoted to these sort of what I still call non traditional forms of nonfiction, which of course have become very mainstream. Travel writing, reportage. We can't do what newspapers do. We can't send someone somewhere to report back on something topical. Although because we have Granta.com now, we can publish more topical things. But our our guiding mission has always been to not try and replicate news stories, but to look at issues in the world through a reportage. Um, 
in, in or to look at them differently, in, I suppose, exactly. than a news piece should. Yeah, be. and to really publish pieces that we think will stand the test of time. Jack wasn't interested in publishing poetry. We not only publish poetry now, we have a dedicated poetry editor. And that's a really exciting thing that, that we've been doing under Sigurd Rousing's editorship. And also John Freeman and Jason Cowley, there have been, and Alex Clark, there have been a few editors since Ian and Sigrid. There's a way in which we sort of always focus on Bill and Ian, but of course there have been some other editors since then. So we still, yes, we still, we still have these sort of grant of principles um, but of course, we we have to move with the times, and uh, you know, literary magazines have to change, especially in the age of the twenty four hour news cycle and social media and all these things. Um, we're never going to break a story. We're never going to we're never going to publish a piece of reportage about something that has been that no one has heard of. Um, we have to think about how we can write about things in new and different ways. Because I, I did want to ask you just a little bit more about just the practicalities of putting an issue together, because a lot of the people listening will be writers and, and readers and hopefully subscribers or would-be subscribers to Granta. Um, how, how then does that, I mean, what's, what's the lead time? How can people engage mm. with that process? We come out four times a year and we are always usually working on two issues at the same time. We're usually literally putting one together as we're working commissioning acquiring for the next one and yeah our lead times are very long um, which can be frustrating for our writers Um, but because each issue is themed we have to think we have to think really far down the line and we also commission a lot of our nonfiction according to our theme so for instance we did an issue um, two years ago called animalia which is all about animals and we commissioned a lot of work. We commissioned short pieces. We commissioned long pieces. And those usually form the basis of our issues. We then read unsolicited nonfiction that comes into us, either through agents or we have submittable. We operate an online platform where we read unsolicited work. We read a lot of unsolicited stuff through that. And occasionally we come across something that works with our theme or works for within the theme of, of a future issue. We read an awful lot of fiction. We don't tend to feel that the fiction has to absolutely fit the theme in the way that the nonfiction sometimes does. We're a little bit more open to that because fiction is obviously a bit more artistic. Um, and again, we read a lot of submissions from agents. We read a lot of submissions from um, writers who we've worked with in the past. And we read a lot of stuff from the general public. And of course, I and a lot of my colleagues go and visit a lot of creative writing programs and meet aspiring writers there as well. So there's a lot to read. And again, as soon as we have the theme, um, as soon as we've pinned, pinned ourselves down to the theme, everything becomes a bit easier. But, but, you know, quite often we're working towards issues where we don't have a theme. And this is what's really hard to describe about how we work. And I think it's always been like this. Bill, Ian, I think there's always been a way in which sometimes you have a theme in your mind for an issue and sometimes you don't and you're working on a nonfiction piece or a brilliant nonfiction piece comes in or a writer has a great idea and that piece then forms the cornerstone of the issue and sort of becomes the thematic the thematic center yeah the theme emerges as you as you go along almost exactly and i think that's the right way to do it because you cannot it's like the theme is a sort of umbrella you don't want every single piece to be exactly the same, obviously. You want every piece to come at the theme from a different angle. And if you suddenly have this great piece of nonfiction on a particular theme and you think you can build an issue around it, that's always really exciting. 
um, again, I call them the sort of metaphysical themes and the, the sort of transcendental themes and the really concrete ones. So an example of a really concrete one is India. We've done two India editions. Another example of a concrete one would be fathers, mothers. The, the more sort of trans- transcendental ones would be things like our most recent issue is called the politics of feeling. And those those sorts of themes that can get, there's a lot of wriggle room there. There, there can be it can uh, not that the others can't be surprising, but there, there can be surprising directions within a really baggy, you know, wide theme like that. Absolutely, and we need that because again, we can't just pigeonhole writing into a particular theme. It's all about the writing. The theme is less important. The theme is just sort of what holds it together. Um, but we have to have wriggle room because occasionally we want to publish a brilliant piece, and it has to. It, it only addresses the theme in a slightly sort of um, ambiguous, ambiguous way. I'm going to ask you a question that I know when I'm asked this question, I find it quite difficult because um, uh, um, I can't always put my finger on why a piece of writing or a, or a, or a novel or, or, a pe- or a nonfiction book moves mm. me. Um, but I'm going to ask you, <laughs> with, with both your editorial hat on, but I suppose as well as, as a reader, um, just generally without the, the, the grant brand in mind, what, what is it for you that, that um, makes a piece of work stand the test of time? Good question. It's so difficult to say, isn't it? I suppose I'm going to go back to this um, piece by James Fenton that, that I mentioned before, The Fall of Saigon, written well after The Fall of Saigon. I guess when you read this piece and other pieces like it, you, despite the fact that things have changed, the times have changed, you know what's happened in this country, you know how it ends, you are still put right there in that place. It's almost like the experience of reading Wolf Hall, I think, by Hilary Mantel. You know what's going to happen, but you're still sort of turning the pages, kind of going, what's going to happen? What's going to happen? Um, And I don't just necessarily mean an urgency in terms of the reading experience. I mean an absorption, I guess. You You are fully absorbed in what is being written on the page in front of you. And that's a really tricky thing to do with reportage or a lot of um, forms of nonfiction, particularly when they relate to world events. Um, we publish a lot by Kapuscinski. And reading his stuff even now, um, it's amazing how, you know, we know what's happened in all these places. We know what's happened in Ghana since he reported back from there. Um, it's amazing how he can place you in a particular moment and allow you to kind of experience some of the things that he was experiencing. I think I think that's about as close as I can get to describing um, how how these pieces can still feel relevant. In terms of fiction, of course, it's different. Um, it is interesting because we have just done all this reading in our back catalogue for our special 40th birthday issue, and it's it is interesting how a piece can you know a piece of fiction might have felt really modern and edgy and new at the time you read it, and now when you read it again, it it doesn't. And that's just because of fiction trends and what's happening in current contemporary literature. Um, But there must, yeah, it's, it's, it's very difficult to talk about that classic, those classic aspects of writing that, that make a piece classic, but I guess it just means you're fully absorbed in it again, no matter how many times you've read it and you, you read something new in it when you return to it again. It's just that kind of that sense of, um, you know, when you, the reader, comes come back to something with different eyes because of where you're at in life or how, you know, what you're bringing to the reading. Yeah. And I think, I think the other thing I would say about that is a sort of classic grant of peace illuminates the people um, rather than necessarily the events in terms of the reportage. I think, I think that's also a kind of a, a, key, a key aspect of these sort of classic pieces that I've been mentioning. 
Um, can you give us any spoilers about the 40th edition? Uh, we're very excited that we've got an event with Sigrid and um, Ian uh, at Orr Festival, the Norfolk and Norwich uh, Festival in May. Um, but are, is, is there any, even without mentioning names, can you give us a flavour in advance? I can, I can. It's, um, it's an interesting mix of, of old and new. What we've done with this special 40th birthday issue is we've made a selection of some of our favourite pieces from the grant to back back issues up until 2013, which is when Sigurd Rousing, our current editor, became the editor. So it's not the whole 40 years, but it's most of the 40 years. And it's interesting how, well, the selection process was, was interesting. We just basically read and read and read. And we asked a lot of old editors and people who'd worked at Granta, our contributing editors, our writers, to give us their their suggestions, what were their favorite pieces. We read, we read all these things, and then we read lots of other things that we felt we should read. And again, this question of what, st- what stands the test of time, what felt dated, that came up a lot. Um, there were lots of pieces of fiction that I read thinking, oh God, I remember loving this piece when I read it in 1993, and it felt just sort of slightly not, not didn't have the same relevance now. Um, but our final selection includes a lot of well, actually, not not as many as I would have thought. These kind of classic Granta, Granta names, people like, as I mentioned before, um, Raymond Carver, Bruce Chatwin, Martha Gellhorn, Kapuscinski, the sort of group of writers who sort of became really associated with Granta in those early days. There aren't quite as many of those as I as I thought there would be, um, and Sigrid addresses that in her introduction as well. And there are quite a few um, there are quite a few sort of recent recent pieces which makes me think that the kind of legacy of Granta is not, it's not just sort of stuck in the past. It's not sort of Granta isn't this magazine that was relevant once and no longer is. Um, it's changed, but I think what we're doing is equally, equally as good as what, what Bill and Ian were doing before. I mean, that, that leads us neatly on actually to the, to the future view, really. That's where I wanted to, to bring us to a close kind of with looking ahead. You know, it's lovely to look back at It's lovely to think about the archive and the fun it must have been to, to revisit all that and, and to think about where it's come from. But where, what's next then? Uh, it, it's 40. It's a huge milestone. Um, and, and you did touch upon the kind of what, what the role of literary magazines today in, in, with the, the world of social media and platforms and news, news, news. I mean, what, what do, where do you think um, Granta should be looking next? I think Granta should continue doing exactly what it is doing. It, it exists in a particular cultural, social, literary space. And of course, there are other magazines now that are also doing that. Um, but I think the moment a literary magazine tries to be something else, um, it just isn't going to work. We, of course, have to think about social media and digital platforms. And indeed, we, we have Granted.com, which is our sort of sister magazine in some ways, where we publish a lot of original material. And we commission a lot for Granted.com as well. And that allows us to be, as I said before, more topical. And we offer digital-only subscriptions um, in addition to our print subscriptions. So in terms, of, in terms of the sort of technological aspect of how you engage with the modern world, we, we, we do do that. Um, but I think really our commitment is to new writing and new writers and new voices. We've always been really international. Bill Buford, again, going back to his, you know, the, the roots of Granta, even though he had this kind of American focus, it was always really, really international. And um, I think that we, we do a really, really good job of, of publishing 
all sorts of writers from around the world. There's a lot of really interesting stuff happening in Asia at the moment. And when we do these country issues, so occasionally we do an issue devoted to a particular country. We did um, an issue on Japan um, about eight years ago. We recently did one on Canada, done one on Pakistan. I think literary magazines have a particularly different set of challenges at the moment to, say, newspapers, um, because our attention at the moment is just being drawn out in so many different places. Television is suddenly really good. You know, when I was growing up, television was sort of just a joke. It was sort of silly. <laughs> but now it's kind of an art form. And people have only so much attention and, and, and mental space they can devote to the arts. I think one of the jobs of literary magazines is to champion new writers and to really, really remind readers out there that literature matters and that there's all sorts of stuff that can be got um, when you turn off your television and you turn off your phone and you just engage in a brilliant piece of writing. Here, here. <laughs> here's, here's to that. And I love that, that idea of Grunta having its face pressed firmly against the window, determined to witness the world, whatever that world outside is. That's such a nice... Um, That's our favourite quote. Yeah. It's lovely, yeah. So, Ros, after all this tantalising um, talk about Grunta and, and all the all the fabulous um, pieces that are there and that people can read and enjoy, uh, past and present, how how can our listeners uh, subscribe or access Grunta? Then, where can they find it? You can take out a subscription via our website, which is Granta.com. A print subscription, which is four issues a year, is £34. Or you can have a digital-only subscription, which is £12 a year, which gives you access to all of our online content, all of our archive content, and everything we publish in print as well. So the two different options. And yeah, granted.com is really, yeah, where you need to go. Wonderful. Wonderful. Well, Ros, on, on behalf of all of us um, here at the National Centre for Writing, we wanted to just wish everyone at Granta a past, present um, and to come, you know, a really happy um, birthday. Um, thank you so much for your time. All right, Peggy, thank you so much. Thanks for listening and many thanks to Ros for indulging us in our dive into Granta history. Please do subscribe, rate and review the podcast over on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, Google Podcasts or wherever you happen to be listening. If you have some writer friends, then do let them know about us. To make sure you're always the first to know about upcoming writing opportunities and events, you can find us on Twitter and Instagram at Writers Centre, like us on our Facebook page, or sign up to our newsletter at nationalcentreforwriting.org.uk. Thanks again, keep writing, and I'll catch you on the next episode when we're returning to the International Literature Showcase and more of Elif Shafak's amazing selection of women writers. Mm-hmm.